Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Trek No Babble. This is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And today we're going to uh, discuss Voyager Season 7, Critical Care. Um, it came out in November of 2000, which was a fraught time. <laughs> Has there been a fraught as it was going to get, though? No. No. Even in the short term, that was that was a simpler time, wasn't it? Well, I remember um, thinking that I hadn't witnessed anything like that before. Uh, that things seemed like they were destabilizing in terms of legitimacy, uh, you know. <laughs> but now it's like, woo, those were such better days. Um, it was, of course, before uh, the next September that I think future historians will probably say that was the thing that smashed our nation. Anyway, we shouldn't <laughs> go off into a huge rabbit hole like that. Uh, healthcare was something in the 90s that uh, liberals under Bill Clinton thought they had a shot at fixing. And what did they want to fix? Well, uh, in the American system, then as now, I suppose, uh, there was a for-profit insurance industry that had sort of taken control of hospitals and at basically choosing what care would be administrated to whom. Um, they weren't doing it in the name of rationing. Uh, so, so I guess what I'm getting at here is this episode could be seen as an allegory of sort of two different things. In one way, it could be seen as an allegory of uh, unfettered, profit-driven healthcare, which the sort of inequality in the episode drives at. But it could also be seen as an allegory for state rationing of healthcare, uh, because of course there's this. Uh, allocator that we'll get to. Um, so I guess that's just something I'm interested in unpacking as we go forward. Yeah, I, I, I skimmed this episode before we got to doing the podcast and I'm, I'm, I have questions for how well, I, I get what you're saying. I'm, I'm just curious how well this episode achieves those things. I've thought a lot about this issue lately. My, my mom has a couple of chronic health conditions and oh boy, insurance is terrible. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we, we are living in a situation in which the organization dedicated to dispensing health care, its highest priority is to not dispense health care. It's a very perverse sort of institution. Yeah, particularly for chronic conditions, there seems to be this thing where they'll only authorize the bare minimum treatment to keep you out of an emergency room, but not remedy the underlying condition even though in the long term it will be more expensive to perpetually keep you out of an emergency than it would be to just fix the underlying condition but spending the money to fix the underlying condition would make your immediate quarterly report look bad yeah it's a very perverse system and it really is the practical disproving of libertarianism as a as a thing but that uh, so you're right we're 
<laughs> we might as well start the episode and, and get into yeah, these. Star, Star Trek is definitely doing its job here in that it's spurring a conversation about real world things, but oh boy, especially given that we're currently living in the middle of a hopefully once in a generation pandemic, oh boy, does it spur some thoughts about how we choose to allocate healthcare. All right. Well, so Kevin is queued up and I am as well. So you at home should get your media queued up at this point. Uh, I wonder if anybody is still using disk. I might be the only person left. Um, get whatever media you watch. Uh, get it at the beginning of this episode, and we will all press play in three, two, one, press play. So we have kind of a spaceship. And this digital mat is interesting. Uh, it's very Futuropolis, but clearly dystopian because there are smokestacks uh, and it's hazy, right? It's also very uh, computer game cutscene. The floating hospital is bizarre to me. I understand you might be living in some civilization that has future technology, but is it ever really going to be more cost-effective to levitate? Yeah. I feel like that can't be the case. I, I always think that during the Marvel movies. I'm like, that enormous ship hovering through the use of helicopter blades can't possibly be a cost-effective use of your resources. <laughs> yeah. All right, so here we see Gar and Chelik. Chelik was a very... I don't know how to put this delicately, uh, but typically speaking, guest stars and mainline stars in Star Trek shows have not been heavy set. And uh, Chelik is one of the rare ones. The other guys were the uh, the hierarchy. Those are, are about the only other guys I can think of that are particularly heavy. Um, it's an interesting choice here. It, it kind of makes him look haughty and... Uh, you know, like like the the guy who runs the orphanage in Oliver or something. Um, he's, he's one of those that guys. I'm struggling to remember the actor's name, but he's one of those actors who shows up in everything. I'm sure he has a list of Law and Order credits as long as my arm. <laughs> now, the actor is Larry Drake. Um, and let's see, Larry Drake, perhaps best known as the mentally challenged office worker, Benny Stolwitz in the drama series, L.A. Law. Oh, that's okay. There we go. That's why I recognize him. <laughs> uh, he played the villainous Robert G. Durant in Sam Raimi's Dark Man. He made guest appearances on Firefly, Crossing Jordan, Stargate SG-1, Six Feet Under, and also Boston Legal. He died at 66. Solid 90s resume. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that was back in the day when actors got residuals. So I, I hope even by, by viewing this, he's got a, you know, a couple of... Couple. Well, he died at 66 in 2016. So. Oh. Oh, Which makes it so that he's only 50 here. That's interesting. So Anyhow. For this episode in particular... I think my disconnect from this episode, and I'm going to flag it here, the Doctor's emitter being stolen has happened, what, three, four, five times now? Put a pin on that frickin' 
emitter. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. just it feels like it, it was used to great effect in uh, Living Witness since it felt like they just stole his entire program outright. Constantly taking the emitter and then forth, and maybe it's because it also happened. So it, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, Living Witness, Equinox, the, the, he just repeatedly gets stolen and co-opted. <laughs> and yeah. it starts to be that problem with data. Where oh, if yeah. it's this easy to take this incredibly sophisticated AI and subvert it to your will, it starts to call into question the use of AI in this context. Well, and so I agree. I agree. It strains tr credulity. Um, and so the story had better justify it. Um, the other thing it gets me thinking about is, you know, what, what is the doctor? It's, the doctor is not the emitter. The emitter houses the program, right? But what is the program? The program is just like lines of code, right? So, you know, can you copy the doctor indefinitely and it will, will it have the same uh, personhood that this doctor has? Or is the doctor something else? Is the doctor like a combination of RAM and code? This injury is pretty gruesome. It's pretty well yeah. done. Um, I mean, it's just really bloody, but it, it looks painful. This Dr. Voji, I can't shake the Sean Astin vibe <laughs> from him, <laughs> which is not a bad thing. I've been watching a lot of Lord of the Rings with the kids while we've been cooped up. Um, but he's just, he's just close enough that it kind of throws me off a little bit. Yeah, he, he has that soft jawline of a, of a Samwise Gamgee, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, his, his eyes aren't all that different either. Yeah, so the doctor is doing what he should be doing, right? He he believes in the Hippocratic Oath. He sees injured people. So despite being stolen, he's going to do this. Not to um, be a bad guy, but I'll momentarily do that. The Hippocratic Oath's core is first do no harm, not you are obligated to help anyone, because I'm reasonably certain that the society that birth the Hippocratic Oath was not one dedicated to selfless, contextless helping of poor people. Yeah, or presumably if a doctor had been captured by a neighboring city-state, um, you know, they might yeah, not feel it, ob obligated to help their enemies. I, I feel like it's, it's one of those, the Hippocratic Oath feels like, and medical dramas haven't helped this, it's really kind of it's, it's become a shorthand for a generic sense of what doctors are obligated to do far beyond what the actual oath covers. Well, so whatever the oath is, uh, there is definitely a very strong um, tint of ethics uh, permeating the episode. You know, so right now the doctor is acting on the ethical principle that he is obliged to alleviate suffering where and when he can even if uh, he is not, you know, feeling good about the circumstances, right? Like he sees suffering, he has to alleviate suffering. And that's a basic level of human empathy that I think we can all uh, get behind, you know? Um, it's like, yes, I'm pissed, I'm upset, but there is suffering in front of me, and so I should alleviate it. Um, this, these scenes that we're seeing right now, are sort of trying to explain and justify the doctor being stolen. 
and yeah, it's like Gar spent the night in sick bay and used that time to steal not only the emitter but also the doctor's program, which is apparently so sophisticated that it can only be housed in one of these two places. Um, does the doctor not have autonomy? You know, See, and, and I think this is my biggest problem with the episode, and I was going to save it for the wrap-up discussion, but I'll just flag it now. I think all of the scenes tracing the thief element are wasted time. The core of the episode that we'll eventually get to is the ethical rationing of limited resources for medicine, which is a real complex question. And I think they could have just come to this planet and had this question. Yeah, you know, it might have been a, a more interesting way to break the story if, um, you know, some Voyager crew members had gotten sick or something. Or, 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 here's the thing. We're eventually going to, you know, spoiler alert for the next 20 minutes of the episode, we're eventually going to see the, you know, gold plan version of this where people are essentially, they're not just treated for ailments, they're essentially granted immortality by the science of the society. And given the way these people do business, we're predisposed to dislike that method. So it, 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 if nothing, I, I think my biggest problem with this episode is we're too much led by the hand for the ethics of the situation. Because the people running the system are apparently greedy thieves, it means that I should distrust their subjective assessment of what is ethical resource allocation. I think this episode would be much more interesting if it were a good faith, but still practically terrible allocation of limited resources, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, so I do think in dialogue, uh, that sort of good faith argument is offered. You know, Chellick says, they brought me here to do this. And then Dr. Dysick says, you know, our society was dying. It's one thing to say that, it's another thing to show it. You know, so if, if they had found some way to dramatize uh, the limited resources out in the world or something, uh, that might be an interesting uh, thing to do to to be, to represent the other side of the argument in the best, uh, most charitable way possible. Um, so we've got an allocator, which is a computer program. Uh, this is reminiscent of some uh, TOS episodes yeah. where the sort of computer runs the society. But there is very, very clearly, and we're gonna be going to level blue uh, shortly, um, this class element which is, is, I think it's interesting. I think it, it stimulates, you know, the emotions, like, like you said, but it also stimulates uh, the thinking, right? This hospital, I mean, we've been reading for the past few years about these, like, what do they call it? Concierge medicine. <laughs> you know, these people, like, who work for Google or something get, you know, they go to these places where they, they have a, a, a case manager and it's it's all like beautiful and, and there's there's these like health club places where you pay a membership fee in addition to your actual medical bills. Um, so 
the treatment coefficient involves professions, skills, and uh, benefit to society. And the doctor asks the question, how is any of that related to medical care? Because he's coming from a perspective of saying all sentient beings who can experience suffering should have that suffering alleviated. Okay. And Chelik and I, apparently the society, you know, is saying, well, that's all well and good if you have unlimited resources, but we don't. So we need to allocate resources by the benefit to society. And, you know, there, there's a certain argument to be made for that, you know, from a utilitarian perspective. Um, if Joe Blow is two months away from curing cancer and Jane Doe is a, a bagger at a grocery store, you know, and there's a treatment that you only have one of, to whom should you give it? You know, it, it, I think I think my core problem with this episode is it feels like the trolley problem. The trolley problem is an abstraction. No one will ever actually find themselves on a trolley <laughs> with the choice to kill one or five people. Yeah. Um, without context, certainly. Like, if I ever did find myself on a runaway murder trolley, there would be events and choices that led to that situation that would meaningfully impact my decision-making process. Presumably a villain would have set that up for you. Right. The problem is, I feel like this is like a thought experiment about medical care with limited resources that is not integrated successfully into a real world. And I think, so Star Trek does allegory. I appreciate that. It's one of the things I love about it. But it does its allegory best when it is integrated into a real story full of characters that I'm connected to. Like, none of the people on this world do I give two bits about. And I, I, I just, I, I feel like this episode wants to posit a question about the rationing of limited resources, but doesn't figure out how to tie it together into something more interesting. And here we are in the middle of another scene with them you know, on the hunt for the doctor. And it's all just time that could have been spent really giving some context to this. Like, I just think had we, if nothing else, I don't think the case for level, level blue was ever made with any sincerity. I, I think there's a, there's a version of this story where, you know, you, 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 you posit the, 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 rant, the person who's two months away from curing cancer versus the grocery bagger but we don't get that element of the people getting the concierge level of care. As far as we can tell, they're just rich people. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no real sense of the trade-offs being made. And, and, and I understand, and e even to the extent that this is a, you know, we're trying to debate, you know, ration care, state care, who makes these decisions. You know, when we had this debate about who gets to, uh, like the debate about Obamacare, was who gets to make the decisions about limited resources. Of course, I believe the other side of the debate was operating in bad faith when they invoked the spectrum of death panels because they're apparently fine as long as it's the insurance company being the death panel. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's literally the situation now. Right. So, but there's, there's just never any sense of reality or sincerity to this. And, and here's the other element. Like, 
I'm not sure if this is the scene where they discuss it or if it's a later scene. It appears these people aren't just being treated for life-threatening illnesses. They're essentially being granted functional immortality. Well, they say it extends lifespan by 40%. Right. There, there we go. There's, there's the line I was waiting for. So this isn't just a debate of who lives and who dies. It's literally saying we will permit you to die to grant this other more preferred person one and a half lives. Well, I mean, that's essentially the direction our society is moving. So I can appreciate. I'm not, dis- I'm not disputing we are moving toward a weird dystopia. I, 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 I stipulate to that. I'm <laughs> saying in terms of an actual ethical debate, like the, the, the dude in the light blue jumper is completely wrong. And the episode at no point makes me think he might be right. And I think that's the real defect of this episode. Uh, I disagree slightly. I think the things he's saying are reasonable. They're just not backed up by things that we see on the well, screen. They're reasonable in the vacuum, but the episode doesn't, yeah, the episode doesn't give us that. Um, yeah, I, I would just, I, I would like a little bit more meat on the bone of the nature of this debate. Also, the other problem is it seems like and again, living through a pandemic has maybe sharpened my sense of this, but it's like all of the people on this red level seem to be dying of easily treatable things. And we totally have that in our society. I appreciate that. that there's a, there was a story out of Texas of a child who died of essentially a tooth infection because their parents didn't have insurance. Something I always think about. Um, but the, the things that the people on red level need to not die seems so small versus the things the people on blue level need to live 40% longer that there, there is no real debate here. I don't think the episode actually frames the debate in a way that can allow for anything close to like, like picking a random episode off the top of my head up the long ladder and go with me for a moment. (laughs) Um, it's a terrible episode, but I did buy, at least for a second, that the people doing forcible cloning on people were doing so from an ethically defensible position of our right to survive as a society trumps your bodily autonomy in this context, given that the nature of the assault is tiny enough and the enduring effect on you small enough, blah, 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 blah. I'm just saying, like, it just, there, there's nothing here to make, like, Maybe had they given me a character on the blue level who was a good person, who's, who, you know, a, a leader who was campaigning for peace or like someone who would have the ability to positively impact the society. Because right now they just seem like entitled Silicon Valley jackasses who I actually would be thrilled if they died painfully. You know, it just, it's been a rough couple of months. Um, I Are just, you thinking of any particular Silicon Valley jackasses, Kevin? Uh, I could I could <laughs> name names, um, but it, it's just I can't imagine who. <laughs> I can't, no, not at all. Um, it just well, well, even for there's a way to even center this on the doctor. The doctor's ethics, while facially neutral, aren't perfect. The way the doctor's ethics work is the patient in front of him is the most important. And that's fine. That is a perfectly valid, internally defensible ethos. But it's also one based entirely on luck. 
if like the doctor would not abandon the patient in front of him to treat the patient who came in the door. His obligations to the patient he is treating is superior to the obligations to the patient he might eventually treat. That, that's, that's also triage medicine. I, that, I'm not disputing the value of that. I'm just saying the, the, the distinction there is it's not, it's, still, it's not a perfect system. It's just one that removes subjectivity from the analysis, which, is, which I get is good because humans are subjective and, and often terrible. I think stripping away the pointless um, mystery hunting plot would have given this episode space to let this idea breathe. It's just we're, we're still a couple of tiers away from the actual debate. And that's kind of where I remain. Um, I mean, I think the doctor is engaging in, in triage medicine. He's saying, there are these people down here with serious injuries, uh, and these people up here do not have serious injuries, and so I'm obligated to treat the people with serious injuries. And this society has instituted a different method of triage. You know, they, they are looking at who will treating help more, you know, in terms of the greater good. Um, let me ask you this. Would the episode have been more interesting to you if the system was supposed to work in a particular way, but in fact, the wealthy people had co-opted the system, like they were bribing Alex, or they were bribing the doctors, uh, they were, they were, you know, like Felicity Huffman getting her kids into school or whatever. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> you know, like this is a thing people do. If there is a system, people will try to subvert the system to their own benefit. Uh, what if the system had run away and had become corrupted? I think that's a, that's a different debate. Uh, or maybe it's not a different debate. It's that, okay, there are two debate, there are two different stories going on here. And because they don't clarify what they're actually exploring, neither gets the exploration it should. There is a question of how do you ration a limited resource ethically? Even the best of people, with the kindest of people, um, will have to make difficult decisions in that context. And that's an interesting story. The other one is, how do you navigate a system in which powerful people have gained the system for their benefit? They are related in practice, I agree. But in a 43-minute episode, I think you have to pick which one you want to explore. Um, I, I, it's just... There's like we're what about halfway through the episode now, and I it's, yeah, just I haven't attached to any part of this of this story yet. I do not care about the outcome beyond a generic sense of I want nice things to happen. Well, uh, I, I just I, the doc for all of the for all of the moral balancing the doctor's doing, it's not really until that like. The debate the doctor ends up having is whether his intentionally poisoning the doctor to game the system for the benefit of poor people was an ethical thing to do, which, which is in itself a fun question. You know, can you harm an individual ethically for the sake of the greater good? That's the good place spent four seasons asking those kinds of questions. I appreciate that. The problem is the doc, 
the doctor's core morality isn't really challenged in this episode, which means making him the focus of the episode was somewhat pointless. Like, the, the doctor, and, and you can even tie this in, the doctor, because he comes from the Federation, is used to not having to make these kinds of decisions. Their solution to this question is simply to be so well-resourced that it's a moot point. Like, the, and, and this is something you, I think this is, this is an episode Deep Space Nine would have been better at. I'll say it that way. Th this idea of how to ration a limited resource only works for a system with limited resources and the, feder the virtue, the, the raison d'etre of the Federation is that they've threaded the needle of not having limited resources. Re the combination of replicators and a multi-ethnic, multicultural, peaceful state means they are never short of things. And don't get me wrong, I, I hope and believe that is how the world would actually work, that if we all got along with each other, we would organically solve resource dis uh, scarcity. But the, the doctor's point of view is, is coming from a place where he's never had to decide who gets this one hypospray because he's never only had one hypospray to distribute. Ex except for that one episode with Harry Kim and that character whose name I forget, where he melts down because he had to make that kind of decision. Mm -hmm. Which was a pretty and, good episode. And that was a much better episode because it, it was organically tied to his identity as a character. I'll say it this way. The allegory is front and center and not the story. And that's a, that, that's a sin I haven't tagged Star Trek with largely since the original series. Someone had an idea about a story about the ethical rationing of limited healthcare resources. And I, I am painfully aware that is what they're trying to do. It is never, it's not, it's not tucked in to an actual story. I, I, I'm being beaten in the face with an allegory. Okay. Like, I can see that. like, it's not as bad as past tense in DS9, but it's still closer to that than it should be. <laughs> I mean, I wish the doctor would point to the camera and say, what would you do? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I do think that, so as Kevin has alluded to, the way this episode is going is that um, the doctor is going to hit upon a unique solution to the problem, which doesn't really seem like much of a solution overall. It only seems like a very temporary uh, kind of solution, which is to uh, accost the administrator, Chelek, and infect him with the disease that he's denying treatment to others for. Um, which, given our current situation, <laughs> I can see a certain amount of uh, visceral appeal to that sort of tactic. There are people whom I would, uh, you know, it's uncouth to say it, but, you know, I, I would not mind seeing them becoming infected with coronavirus. Um, the doctor does feel bad about it. And at the end of the episode, he does ask Seven of Nine to examine him, I guess. Uh, it, it's not done in a very 
in some ways it's kind of like the uh the most toys with data yeah yeah you know, you've got an an artificial entity who has ethical subroutine and the doctor's ethics are to uh, first do no harm and to alleviate suffering not to cause suffering does this represent growth for him that he's willing to cause suffering to an individual in order to alleviate suffering on a larger scale if that is good, isn't that isn't that really what this society claims they're doing you know they are trying to alleviate suffering for a larger group of people by permitting a smaller group of people to endure suffering. I mean, that's what the rationing is. Uh, you know, people who can make our world better are going to get better care, and people who can't aren't. Maybe the interesting question is one of self-determination. You know, when he's asking about Tebus, um, you know, Tebus has sort of obvious, not talents, but you know, inclinations and, and could be a, a handy doctor at some point, but he's not given the opportunity uh, to become a doctor by this society. You know, he's, um, his individual sort of self-determination and autonomy is being uh, subsumed to the, the, the larger concerns of the society. And so I think there is an interesting question here about whether any coefficient any algorithm could possibly uh, encapsulate a life, an individual, and what their choices might be. That's not, the episode only alludes to these sorts of questions. You know, it doesn't really explore them in depth. And I agree with you that they'd have more time to do that if they weren't doing the sort of silly mystery subplot. Um, I think it's a fascinating question, though. Can a computer predict what an individual is going to do? And if it can, should it? You know, because if you've got a thousand people who are working in, you know, industrial places like Tebas does, two of them or three of them or four of them may well have the ability to do something else, you know? And if your system and your algorithm does not allow them to, then you're sort of squelching progress overall and you're limiting individuals in an artificial way um the doctor's making an interesting point here too you're not rationing care here you're sort of culling the root which <laughs> there's an accusation that uh cuts right now because we have a situation where i think they're not yet saying it outright like they just did in brazil um, but I, I think our leaders, if you want to call them that, are indeed making that choice. They're saying the people who are dying are not worthy people. And so it's better if they die so that we don't have to pay for their health care in the future. Uh, you know, social security roles will diminish. Medicare and Medicaid payments will diminish by 100,000, 200,000, whatever. Well, great, you know. It's not hurting anybody I know, and therefore I can see this from a sort of spreadsheet, you know, uh, aspect. I, the doctor makes a good point. 
I also really kind of like this thing where the, the computer is uh, regimenting where and for how long he should do things, uh, because this is very reminiscent of the way things are going in the uh, service sector these days. Uh, Amazon workers are given a, a computer that they wear all day, and the computer tells them what route they should take and how long it should take to get there. You know, they're given like four things to pick off shelves to fulfill someone's order, and they're given a time limit to do it in, which is incredibly dehumanizing. Um, so again, is the episode exploring that? No, but it's very evocative, right? So I think the episode is evocative. It gets me thinking about a lot of things. It just doesn't really answer or deeply explore any of those questions. Uh, I think the episode still has to do with, like the episode still has to be a discreet 45 minutes of story. And it's just not there. If, if nothing else, the, like, I think this episode would be an order more interesting if the, like, like the, uh, Chelik is his name. I, I, I've become terrible at names. Um, he keeps saying the society was dying. I was brought here to make tough choices. There's never any sense that that's true because the, the story we get like makes this like I might and my impression when I watched this as a I guess I would have been 17 17 year old was that that's just lying <laughs> that there there are rich people baldly lying to hoard resources and that's boring and outraging but also boring I, I just think if there were any real like I'm not disputing that there, there could be a situation in which everyone acting ethically or morally or in the best interest of both the individual and the society and like that, that two Captain Picards could not find themselves at opposite ends of this debate. That just wasn't the episode we got. Yeah, I, I, I think, agree with that. I think yeah. it's, it's kind of half-baked, right? Yeah, I just... And the, the other problem is like, the closest we've got, so we got this one, we, we, we got the Sean Astin doctor and, and, and the dead kid. There's just not, there's just not a lot here for me to latch on to. Something like, like First Contact or there, there have been other episodes that have done a much better job of making me bond almost immediately to the alien of the week. And, and, and again, I think this goes back to the fundamental problem. The doctor, the patient, every, everyone here in this society has been carefully reverse engineered for their role in the debate. And I think that problem pervades the episode. It's not like, I, I think a restructured episode where they come to the planet, this, our doctor becomes friends with their doctor. And from that, he learns of and has emotional stakes in the debate of how to ration limited resources. Um, so even something like um, Enterprise's uh, Dear Doctor, did a substantially better job of phrasing the ethical debate organically. It, it, th th that's the thing. For, for it, th the conflict of this episode is inorganic. 
someone like I, I appreciate all the things you're saying about how it's thought provoking, but someone reverse engineered a story to provoke the thoughts that are provoked, but it leaves an it leaves the actual episode somewhat limp. You, you, you can't, you can have an interesting debate in a philosophy class off of a thought provoking thought experiment. You cannot build 43 minutes of entertainment from it. It just, yeah, I, I, I feel their priorities are reversed. The, the best, and, and we agree TNG did it best. TNG was at its best when the ethical questions flowed under the story, not over them. And that's where this episode kind of sticks for me. Well, I think Dear Doctor uh, is a better episode. Um, it's one of the best, actually. Uh, I mean, if, if nothing else, ethical debates are their most entertaining when the opposing viewpoints are both operating in good faith. Yeah. Because other, like, you, you can't have an ethical debate with a bad person. And nothing they've done on the affluent side of the society makes me think they're anything other than terrible people. And that's, and it, like, if nothing else, this episode gives me an out I shouldn't have. I can dismiss all of his arguments about a dying society and limited resources and the greater good because he is a bad person. I can choose to dismiss his arguments easily because he is clearly a bad person. And the episode have made that explicit. The best kinds of these episodes are the ones where if he were a good person, if he were, if he were tortured by his decisions, if he were carefully, exhaustively shredding himself to make each, every, in each and every decision, I would then have some investment that his viewpoint might be the correct one or at least the most tolerable one in a impossible circumstance. Like, yeah, I, I agree with you. Triage medicine like is made to be a villain. Ethical, yeah, triage medicine is an ethical nightmare. Like, in, in, in triage medicine, they, they have these tags. There was a green, yellow, red, and black for like who, and that's how you prioritize who gets treated. So, you know, patients that would normally get treated right away like a broken bone get like a green or a yellow tag because they're in pain, but they're not going to die. So you treat the red tags first. Black tags aren't just for the dead, they're for the dying. Uh, I think the, the, what I've read is mo the most common version being burn victims, where, you know, if every doctor we had used every bandage we have, we might save this person, but dozens of people might die in the meantime. So it is in the estimation on that. And there's a much sharper, cleaner version of this debate. Like if you find someone who with every resource you have might live, but dozens of people might die in the meantime because you're not treating the things you could certainly treat them for, what are the ethics of that? That's what triage medicine is. And it's also kind of, ethically neutral like no one's accusing the person who needs the most care of manipulating the system to get it i i just think there was a cleaner way to make both sides of this debate more interesting and more credible and both a combination of a 
two-dimensional iteration of the debate coupled with being crowded in by the heist element leave this episode pretty flat for me. My, yes, <laughs> so I agree with you. Uh, my question for this scenario is what happens when the doctor leaves? <laughs> you know? That, that's the other thing. This is another reason why I think Deep Space Nine would have been better at this kind of story. Because Deep Space Nine, by its very structuring, acknowledges we have to stay to live with the consequences of our actions. This is the very kind of debate that I would actually enjoy watching like Cisco and Kira and to a lesser extent Bashir. I've been during quarantine, I've been rewatching Deep Space Nine from the beginning with a group of friends who some have seen it, some have not, some saw it like back in the nineties and haven't watched it since. So it's a little viewing party every week and oh boy, the first two seasons, they are they are special. Um but I think this debate would just better suit that environment. Be, like we just we just watched Sanctuary, that that one where the people wanted to settle on Bajor because they thought it was their promised land. When Kira says, "We can't help you, so we don't want to let you stay because even if you tell us you won't want our help, we don't believe that that will stay true because we couldn't just watch you die even if you refused our help." That those that was just landed with more delicacy and sincerity and a kind of moral completeness that let me care about both sides. There's just not enough meat on this bone for me. Like, like if nothing else, we have spent this episode talking about the idea of this episode, and I've looked at the screen like a half dozen times to double check where we were in relation to a point I wanted to make. Even in bad episodes, we watch the episode because in a bad episode, there's enough bad things on the screen to kind of compel my attention. This episode, this episode is a first draft. Yeah, it's not bad. Someone had an idea and it's a great idea. It is a salient, urgent, uh, moral debate with real world analogs but it was never converted from that idea into a fully realized story my question is <laughs> how, how could seven of nine diagnose problems with his ethical subroutines what would those problems look like? This goes back to the problem of dissent and of, like with data where it's like ethics and morals are related but not identical concepts. Ethics don't tell you if you're a good or a bad person. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's not that easy to be like, like, yeah, ethics cannot be reduced to mathematics. If nothing else, that is the dramatic center of every story about ethical conflict. Um, if there were a way to reduce ethical conflict to mathematical solutions, philosophy wouldn't exist. Um, like, or, like, 
even at the end of this episode, the doctor is wrestling with what he did. He intentionally harmed a sentient being in the name of saving a great many other sentient beings. Okay, I'm with you so far. There is an internally possible way to make that okay. But again, that very debate, how do I apportion a limited resource? Like in, in that episode, what was it? Latent Image was the title. Okay, so yeah. my memory works. It's okay. Time has meaning. Um, in Latent Image, he had a limited resource, his time. He only had time to save one person. He chose reflexively to save his friend. And he felt bad about that. Yeah, that is true. a very cleanly defined, understandable conflict that any non-hologram might feel. I mean, if, if my choice were between saving you and a random stranger, I might reflexively choose you because of the, you know, our longstanding friendship. You I would feel bad about that because the other person isn't defective for, not, for being a stranger. That would, be a, that would be a real moral quandary. Well, thank you for maybe choosing me, Kevin. I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying for sure. You know, it, the, the dice would be weighted in your favor, but I make no promises. Well, it depends on a certain triage estimation also. Right. Like, we, and, may, and maybe that's what, maybe that is what's kind of most sharply bothering me. We've done, the doctor explores the ethical limits of triage medicine before to much greater effect because it was focused on the doctor. Like, latent image almost stands as proof that the doctor is a sentient being because he had a dark night of the soul. Yeah, I think that was just missing from this episode. I didn't care enough about the people being treated or not treated, or even the doctor doing the treating to just latch on to anything in this episode. This episode was 43 minutes that transpired and almost nothing more to me. <laughs> I think this episode would have been better uh, if it had dug into the specifics of this world. Yes. More. Yes. They, and, they and, Voyager, sort of... and, and even, even setting aside, like whatever I want to say about Voyager doing or not doing serialized stories, they've sketched fully realized planets in an episode thinking back to what was it dragon's teeth uh, like or you know, like, like like they they've managed to do three-dimensional societies in there's going to be one later in this season uh workforce which does yeah. a really good job of that this feels like like if if you combined workforce with this episode you might get like a perfect star trek episode like a six on our scale So yeah, I, I just, every, not, no individual element was bad. Their idea wasn't bad, the acting wasn't bad, but the aggregate result is just flat to me. Okay. What would your overall rating be? Uh, it's between a two and a three. I'll end that out. Um, and I think I'm going to go with the two. It, the combination of an underdeveloped idea and an episode that to watch for 43 minutes was unengaging means it's a subpar episode. 
Okay. I was a little more engaged than you were. I recognize all the problems. Um, I think maybe, you know, what we've learned over our, is it 10 year experiment <laughs> in writing smart track reviews uh, is that, you know, I, I will cut a little slack to a big idea that doesn't do the character work it needs to. And you'll cut more slack to a character story that completely lacks science fiction. Oh yeah, uh, I, I, I'm this close to going back and giving Rascals a four. <laughs> yeah, I think Rascals is fun, you know? And I like Star Trek the motion picture more than a lot of people, apparently. Um, so I, I'm gonna give it a three. I think it's mediocre, uh, you know? it. First draft is a good way of putting it. It's kind of sophomoric in a certain way. Uh, that's another way of putting it. Yeah. It's like something that a clever high school student might come up with as a, as a story, but not really develop it in the way that uh, an experienced writer would to, you know, give you those things to latch on to emotionally. Um, I think that Robert Picardo did a fine job with the material. Yeah. I thought the production design was pretty good. There were a lot of really nice uh, space shots of planets and stuff. Um, you know, they weren't in the service of a better story, but they still looked nice. Yeah. Um, I thought the digital map work on the world was interesting enough to make me want to know more about that world and disappointed that I didn't learn more about that world. Um, yeah. This episode would have really been helped if they had visited the surface, basically. Yeah. And, and I think, I think this part of it, it's just so busy. There's a couple, there's a bunch of things going on, but it never really resolves to what they want it to. Well, I found it interesting that some of the characters who were in the red level seemed to sort of to have uh, internalized the value system of the society so if there had been more of that like on the surface like maybe if the doctor had visited tebus's family to tell him that he died you know or something something so yeah i i definitely agree with all of your criticisms uh they just they hit me with a little bit different weight than they do you uh so i think it's a three um but I'll, I'll say that it makes for a total of five. And if you ask me to rate this out of 10, I might say five out of 10 as opposed to four out of 10. So I'm kind of okay with our disagreement. I don't, and I, I get what you're saying. I, I've certainly been buoyed in a Star Trek episode by the concept when it papers over an execution problem. This was just not one of those times. Well, <laughs> not to constantly rag on Discovery or Picard. Uh, but let me engage in some ragging on Discovery and Picard. Um, this episode is not great. It's mediocre. Uh, however, I do think it is better than Picard uh, or Discovery because while it doesn't effectively explore the issues that it raises, it does explore them. <laughs> You know, like over the space of 40 minutes or let's say 30 minutes with 10 minutes wasted, right? 
if this had been an episode of Discovery or Picard, uh, this whole episode would have been like a three-minute scene, tops, right? I'm thinking about Picard with What's-Her-Face and her estranged son. <laughs> like, that seems like a massive issue to tackle for a character. Three minutes, you know. The relocation of Romulans and, you know, how, how they've become an isolationist, racist society. Four minutes, maybe, you know. So I will at least give credit to an episode that fails. And I do think this episode fails uh, to fruitfully plumb its depths. It at least has depths that could have been plumbed. And it tried to in a in a halting you know sort of first draft sort of way you know whereas it seems like kurtzman and company are satisfied there's the episode of discovery with the god what the fuck are they like crystal blue fart people on that planet who their crystals can help the federation decloak klingon vessels or something and would this non-corporeal race of fart beings want to help the Federation? They don't even freaking ask the people. We don't ever hear their side of it. Saru like has a mind meld or something with them off screen, <laughs> you know, and people, people who we respect will say, wow, that was the most Star Trek episode that it's been so far. And it's like, no, it's not. Well, to be fair, even in an uncharitable interpretation, that still was the most canonically Star Trek episode oh, they sure. did that season. Um, no, I, I'm you not saying like two minutes. Like the tardigrade can suffer, and so we shouldn't use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. You talked about that for like ninety seconds, and then you just moved on. <laughs> you know, at least this episode has the temerity to to for you to be boring and for me to be uh you know like inchoate for 43 minutes you know like that's star trek to me uh it's willing to do something for 43 minutes sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't you know whereas kurtzman trek is like it's it's kind of like the the makeup cannon that Homer invents, you know, to blast makeup on people's faces. And you're supposed to like appreciate it, that it was so clever and that look, all of that color is on your face now. And it's like, well, that wasn't enjoyable at all. It was, ju it was just like a blender, you know, like spewing guts at me. It, I it, will give you that the, the the Star Trek that gives me the Star Trek I like as a byproduct will also make this episode. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's I will, I, I will, I will give you that. The, 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 Star, the Star Trek that is engaged in allegorical storytelling is occasionally going to give me Who Watches the Watchers and occasionally is going to give me insight, um, critical care. Yeah, exactly. This was not a resounding success. Who but, I, but I'll say that having pulled that episode from my memory, who watches the watchers stands as the apotheosis of this kind of storytelling because it managed to, for 
for, for Picard uh, and Troy, it, it latched on the characters I care about, gave them real stakes. Like, Picard cares about the Prime Directive. Troy cares about not being shot, right, on board. And through the father-daughter story uh, of the Mintakins, like, th- that story managed to land caring about all of the stakeholders in that episode. And to, to really drive my point home, now that I've gotten here, I'm really excited. Um, Lico had a non-ridiculous point. He cared about the safety of his daughter, the safety of his society, and if possible, not having his wife be dead. Great. All of those positions are one that I can endorse as ethically at least neutral. So even if Lico's actions were somewhat ridiculous or extreme, they were from a place of unambiguous moral clarity. He only, like, he wanted good in the world. And all the good he wanted were ones I recognized and would want for myself. So even if it led to him bow and arrowing Picard, it was <laughs> not from a place of rampant greed. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, who watches The Watchers is kind of like the inverse of this episode, where it manages to set up the core ethical debate organically through the conflict and feelings of characters I already cared about or characters the episode encouraged me successfully to care about. Yeah. That is what is missing from this episode. I'm with you there. Absolutely. Um, I might go rewatch who watches the watchers after we're done here. I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. Uh, First contact is another episode that strikes me that way. I mean, I don't want to be a generational curmudgeon. I've just, I've been listening I've been listening to uh, Nicole Byer and Lauren Lapkus's podcast, Newcomers, in which they, as people who have never seen Star Wars, watched all nine Star Wars films, plus Solo, Rogue One, Mandalorian, and the Holiday Special. And it is interesting watching people who didn't encounter it as children encounter it. And I do try to be aware of that. Like, I understand a lot of my affection for and thoughts about Star Trek were shaped when I was nine. I do think about that a lot. And I do wonder, like, I've ha- again, I've, you said to I, people whose opinions I otherwise respect have liked or loved Discovery or Picard. And I do kind of, I'm like, what? What? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm trying to land at a place of if you derive pleasure from this, especially in these times, I'm not here to deny you any pleasure you can find. Um, but I will say I continue to derive the most pleasure from the warm, glowing, warming glow that is the next generation. Yeah. I I do as well. You know that of me. Um, I think it's justifiable. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think, Nick, even going back to Rascals for a second, and we're getting off topic here, but it's a it's quarantine. Where do you got to be? Um, I have, I'm only kind of, 30% joking when I say I actually might give Rascals a four if we re-reviewed it today. And do, do you know what tipped me over? It was thinking about the scene with Guinan and Roe. Jumping on the bed, yeah. Yeah. Guinan's message to Roe was, you do not owe your traumatic childhood being unhappy now. That's a deep fucking message when you think about it. 
it kind of blows my mind. Like, it just, the setup is stupid. The ending is stupid. The Ferengi are deeply stupid. But it used its stupidity to tell a thoroughly realized character story about both main crew and recurring characters. It's just like, like you, 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 you got Picard wondering if, about whether he should have chosen a life outside of Starfleet. You get the O'Briens wondering what it means to be married. You get the wise character telling the traumatized character, you don't owe your trauma unhappiness. That's a like it kind of blows my mind how emotionally aware that episode is, given how dumb the setup is. And what an enjoyable experience as a result the actual episode becomes. Well, and not to rag on Discovery and Picard, but I'm going to rag on Discovery and Picard. Why does Rascals work so well? And anything by Kurtzman and company fails so miserably. I'll, I'll say it this way. I'm going to answer your question, even though I know you want to answer your own, but I'm going to answer it for you. No, I want to hear I'm, your answer. I'm going to use the man. I assume you've watched the Mandalorian, right? No, not yet. Oh, you should watch the Mandalorian. I know. I know. The Mandalorian manages to do in 10 episodes. What both the prequels and I'll say it, the sequels fail to do which is be enjoyable. The, 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 I'm not spoiling anything here because the memes are everywhere. Mandalorian cares about Baby Yoda. That is the main through line of Mandalorian. The result is 10 episodes that almost up and down the line without fail are enjoyable to watch. It is fun. It was fun to watch that show. And TNG, in between the episodes of like Chain of Command or Best of Both Worlds, was fun. So because the stakes were not, like even in The Mandalorian, the stakes are not the end of all life in the universe. It's will the Empire get its hands on Baby Yoda? Which would be bad, but not apocalyptically bad. Yeah. So be, everything's a little bit smaller, and each episode is them basically going to a new planet with a new improv comedy master as the guest star, and the end result is just fun. It is fun. Like I, I knocked out The Mandalorian literally in one sitting on New Year's Eve this year, a friend got a Disney Plus subscription. We just sat and drank and watched that entire season. And it was so much fun. And, and not for me to rag on, the, on the, the later era Star Trek. TNG was fun. Even when it was serious, it was largely fun. Episodes that are like crushing, like, like Chain of Command, are the exception that proves the rule. Start next generation is fun to watch. I'm like, ooh, they're going to a planet. I'm excited. I'm happy when I watch that show. And even the like, I like Discovery and Picard more than you. I'm not mad at it the way you are, but that's that that's largely out of like a 
meditative sense of like, I choose not to be angry, not because there's not enough there to make me angry. But I will stipulate the later era Star Trek lacks the fun of its predecessors. Well, so let me see if any of these ideas speak to you. One thing that I've come to sort of disdain in Kurtzman Trek is that it's miserable people doing bad things. I will, I will give you that. I, I will largely give you that. And so it, I feel like that maps onto your point about fun and what I take to be your point about the Mandalorian. Uh, if the Mandalorian was just an awful person, it wouldn't be as much fun to watch as someone who cares about a creature who's cute. You know? I mean, he's a morally gray character. There are some moments, but by and large, like, if nothing else, the dramatic tension of the season is his care for the cute creature versus whatever less, you know, less valorous parts of his nature um, he might feel. But, I, yeah. So it's in Discovery and in Picard, the characters that I'm asked to care about are miserable people frequently doing awful things sometimes to each other, sometimes to enemies, right? Even seven, seven of Nine has been, you know, pulled into this maelstrom of grim, dark bullshit. You know, like, she's a Fenris ranger, and she goes around the galaxy killing people because of justice or something. <laughs> We're never really given what the injustice is that she's re remedying. Hey, don't get me wrong. I haven't watched Jerry Ryan be Batman. But honestly, and I, oh my God, I'm about to make a macro point, so go with me. The best version of Batman is the animated series. Oh, yeah. He manages to land the darkness of the Batman mythos in some delightful fucking romps. Yeah, Obviously, the animated series is really a lesson for writers in how to tell a mature story without being leaden or grim. Yeah, I agree with wow. that. Wow, I've just synthesized the whole point. You just witnessed it here. You just witnessed it happen in real time, Internet. There you go. You're welcome. So the other aspect um, of Kurtzman Trek that I think limits anyone's ability to actually enjoy watching the episodes. Like, I kind of think it's just like bright garbage, you know, it, it's like colors and, and images and occasionally beautiful people sort of traversing the screen for 40 to 60 minutes at a time. Um, but then none of it stays there. Like I can't imagine anyone caring about Burnham or Saru or Ash Tyler. No, I care about Saru. I'm always going to care about us. I'm so like I'm not saying Saru is actually gay, but I'm saying that level of sass in a human male would be gay. <laughs> so I'm going to say I care about Saru, but I, I take your 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 general point. I'm just being well, and so like Picard to a lesser extent, Seven of Nine, and Riker and Troy are basically the only characters I care about in the show Picard. I I could care I could not care less about Rios or Gerardi or Elnor 
who's another miserable person doing horrible things. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to push back. I will say I do like Rafi just on the basis of the performance of Michelle Hurd. She did a great job. And I like Gerardi. Allison Pill was great. It, it, they were disserved by the writing, but they them, the actresses themselves brought real depth to the character. Oh, like, yeah. I like Allison Pill. Yeah, even as but I understand, it's a horrible person who then suffers no comeuppance for her horrible actions. Yeah, like like I understand the scene had nothing close to the narrative infrastructure to make me care about her reunion with her son, but Michelle Hurd was giving it all with her face. I appreciate that. I acknowledge it and I respect it. Um, but but back to our general point. Yeah. There is no room in the season one of Picard we got for fun. And I don't care what anyone says, Picard's terrible French accent does not count. No, that doesn't count. Um, Well, so what my point was about this sort of second axis of criticism is that in addition to being miserable people doing horrible things, uh, no characters are ever given time to breathe. So... I just watched uh, The Icarus Factor with my kids, you know, and The Icarus Factor is not a great episode of Star Trek by any stretch of the imagination. Nonetheless, because it gives Riker time to be Riker, you know, to have feelings, even if I don't agree with his feelings, you know, like I'm watching the show being like, dude, bury the fucking hatchet with your dad. What's wrong with you? But He's had experiences, you know, his mother died, his father was very distant, you know, it's like, even if I don't agree with the way that he's approaching them, I can understand it. It's consistent within itself as a story, and it's consistent with the rest of Riker's characterization, you know, none of, none the Icarus Factor is in some ways a retcon, yes, I mean, all storytelling to some degree is the act of retconning things, you know, filling in backstory for characters who you've been thrown into a situation with at the start of the story, right? There's very few stories that start with the birth of the character and then you follow it. Usually the story starts at the most interesting place and gives you enough backstory to understand the character, right? And that's what TNG is doing. You know, we don't see all of Riker's childhood. We don't see all of Troy's childhood. We don't see all of Data's childhood. All, you know, no, of course not. But when they engage in retcon backfill for the characters, they stay with it for long enough. They don't just do it in a line of dialogue. They actually dramatize the issue. So Data gets brothers, you know. Uh, Riker gets the Icarus factor and uh, the the Pegasus, right? Um, well, I think a stronger argument for your thesis on retconning is Pegasus, but even that still works because, like, yeah, it, Pegasus introduces a whole pivotal event of Riker's life we've never heard anything about, but both narratively justifies why Riker wouldn't talk about it. Yeah, and, it's And as I argued in the episode, kind of justifies one of the big open, like, it's a retcon that explains one of the big question marks of Riker's character through the series. Why does he never accept command? As I posit in our review of that episode, it's because he thinks he, he isn't worthy. Yeah. Like, like that was a, like, yeah, for, 
uh, sorry, we, we, wow, we are way, if nothing else, I think our conversation here kind of justifies our position on this episode, given that all we have talked about are things not much to do with this episode. Um. <laughs> Anyhow, Kurtzman Trek does not give characters scenes. It doesn't give them time to breathe. And when it engages in retroactive continuity, it does it in a way that feels like work for the viewer. It's like, okay, I need to write this down so that I remember it when some dumb fucking reveal hinges on this fact that is only mentioned in dialogue, you know? It, it's not interested in its own characters. The characters are merely a means to the end of the big dumb plot. And they lied and they told us, oh, this is going to be so totally different. And it's going to, oh, it's going to be meditative. And it's going to have deep character stories. Oh, and we're going to really dig into who Picard is at this stage in his life. And it lies. Those are lies. You're just lying. No, you're telling a big dumb action story. And you're using characters that we care about in order to make us subscribe to it. That's what these shows are. TNG, Voyager, DS9, Enterprise, you know, the least of the bunch, <laughs> TOS. They create characters. Journey to Babel is retcon, right? You know, Amok Time is retcon. Like, wait, what? Spock's engaged? You know, <laughs> Well, fine, of course he is. So we learn something about Vulcan. We learn something about him. We have a cool, you know, fist fight on the surface of Vulcan where Picard, not uh, Captain Kirk's shirt gets ripped, you know, and then we have a beautiful moment at the end when he realizes that he didn't kill his friend. You know, it's like the retcon serves the story and they focus on it for 50 minutes instead of giving us work to do, you know? It's like reading a history book where all the events are summarized and I'm supposed to like make an outline so that I can understand it all. Like that's not fun to watch. What's fun to watch is nice people doing good things whom I care about, which is the opposite of what Kurtzman Trek is. Miserable people doing horrible things that I don't care about because I don't care about any of the characters because I haven't been given enough to care about. Like Burnham? She could fall into a black hole for all I care. And it's not because she's a woman and it's not because she's African-American. No, it's because her character makes no sense and she doesn't have a realistic backstory. Two seasons in, I'm told that she's like the genius of all geniuses and her mother is the foremost temporal scientist in the universe and they have to like save each other or something or else everything will die. And it's like, you can't just spring that on me two minutes before the big climax of, of the season. You know, that's not fair. And it's boring and I don't care because it's just random garbage that happens. I don't care about her character. I agree with you on Saru in that, like, the performance is the most engaging. And oh, yeah, through sheer force of will, Doug Jones has made a character I care about. Yeah. Like, I care about him caring about his sister, and I would love a story that really undergirded that. All the right. best episode of Discovery was a short trek. You know, it was like seven minutes 
on Saru's home planet. Yeah. And why was that the best episode? Because they spent seven consecutive minutes on one thing. Well, I'll give you that. All right. It, 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 the hour draws late here, and uh, I am deep into my cups. So I, I, I think we have, we, we have analyzed both this episode and the franchise generally quite thoroughly. Um, that is well, a, bringing, is a, bringing it back to critical care. Yeah. It's, it's a mediocre episode, but I still care about the people on screen and they're still doing nice things or at least trying to. So there you go. Yeah. All right. That's a five out of 10 for critical care. Back for more Voyager season seven and then eventually enterprise, which I'm excited about because I missed a lot of enterprise in college. So that, that'll actually be a real new experience for me. It's been a while since I've had a new experience with Star Trek one that didn't outrage me. Yeah, it's been seven or eight years since I, I watched it also. So it's, it, it will be relatively fresh for me. All right, well, we'll see you then. Okay.